Well, the, the elders have requested that I give some instruction on the subject of public prayer. And in my files, I went looking, because I remembered I had given some teaching on it in the past. I didn't even remember the context of it. I thought maybe this was permitting teaching, but it was given in a different context. And I found in my files some handwritten notes on this subject that were from my pre-computer days. And uh, dating almost exactly 30 years ago, in the annals of Baptist history, Albany Baptist history, they're somewhat ancient, I guess. And since it's been 30 years since I gave instruction on this matter, and since they were not given to the whole church, but rather to a spiritual leadership class, a high percentage, I think, of you that are sitting right in this room this morning were never there at that particular time. And uh, because a good number of you lead us in public prayer, some of you on, on Sundays and some of you on Wednesdays, a good number, uh, we're going to be giving something of a refresher course on this subject of how to lead in public prayer. And so drawing upon what I laid out 30 years ago, as well as some fresh reading, some thinking of, that I've done since then, we're going to embark upon a series of lessons on this subject. It's not going to be me every Sunday morning, but uh, sometimes in the afternoon we'll be doing it, and we will be uh, speaking on this subject for a few times of how to lead in public prayer. And as we do this, I'm going to be speaking to you as a fellow struggler. I want you to understand that uh, all of us struggle to pray better than, than we do. Uh, public prayer is an exercise about which not one of us doesn't feel his shortcomings. In fact, just even general prayer and private prayer, you want to get people convicted, just start talking about prayer. All of us feel like we fall short in the whole subject even of our private prayer. And when it comes to public prayer, there are special demands upon us that even go beyond private prayer. And for you men, this is a duty that few of you can escape. Every Sunday and every Wednesday, the duty lies before us. And it's the desire of your elders that we grow in our ability to be the mouthpiece of God's people as we go to the throne of grace. And even though it is our understanding that this falls upon men, Paul says, I will that the men pray. He uses a special term that speaks about the masculine men. And he even though it's our understanding that it's the duty of the men to be the ones that lead us in prayer, this is not something that's irrelevant for you that are ladies. For one thing, those of you that are married, uh, you can help your husbands that lead in prayer and, and give them some pointers perhaps of some things that maybe uh, they didn't notice when they were leading in prayer, some, maybe some speech patterns and the like. You can point out to them. And uh, some of you, you, you go together with... Uh, Ladies Bible studies, and in that context, and ladies, you have some special time of prayer for, for missionaries, and so even as ladies, uh, this is something that's not irrelevant for you. Now, before we launch into this study, I want to just give some special credit to several sources, and I'm not going to be quoting so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that all the way through this series, and I just want to generally speak to you about some sources that have been very helpful to me on this subject. There's been a chapter on by, by Robert Dabney on the subject of public prayer in his book on uh, preaching. And there's also a, a whole book on this subject that's been written by Samuel Miller. And then there are two chapters on prayer in Spurgeon's lectures to my students that are exceedingly helpful. And then there are some materials that Pastor Martin gave in his pastoral theology uh, lectures. 
And then there is an essay by John Newton. It was printed one time years ago, I think back in 90, 1981, but it's also in his collected writings, uh, which he spoke upon this subject. And then more recently, a book by Ryan McGraw, How Shall We Pray at Prayer Meetings. And what I want to do is begin, and maybe next time I can pass out an outline and by way of review, and you can see more of the structure of where we are. But first of all, our main heading, the first main heading of what we want to do this morning, is to give some general perspectives that are necessary to the right approach to this subject. So before we get to the particulars, these are some general perspectives. And the first of these perspectives is that if we ever grow in our ability to lead God's people in public prayer, we will have a great sense of the greatness of this task. And here I'd like you to turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul tells us in the middle of this book, he tells Timothy why he wrote. Um, and we're... We get the clue here, actually, to the whole book, not in the first chapter, but here in chapter 3, beginning with verse 14, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So he sets forth this picture of the church being a glorious institution. It is where God dwells. Remember the Old Testament imagery of the Shekinah glory of the descent of the cloud upon the tabernacle and, and the like. And the church is that house where God dwells. It's the place when we, it's not necessarily this building. When we're all gone here, it's not a special way in which God is in this place as if it's some kind of a hallowed place in, the, in its brick and mortar. But it's when the people of God gather together, that's where God is, and he dwells with them. And it is the church. It's the pillar in the ground of the truth that upholds the truth. And it's in this, it's in this context, Paul says, it's with this high picture of what you're all doing here as a pastor and the group you're pastoring, you need to behave yourself in a certain way in this holy place where God dwells. And... Among the instructions that he gives to Timothy are instructions in chapter 2 concerning uh, leading in prayer. And he gives instructions about some of the things that ought to be prayed for in the first part of the chapter. And then he says in verse 8, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so, brethren, leading God's people in prayer, when we think of it in this context, it's a great, it's a high, it's a holy, even awesome undertaking. And when we lead in public prayer, we become the very mouthpiece of the entire congregation as the congregation approaches God. We lead the whole host of God's people, as it were, into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells. Think of the priest went in one time of the year, and you are the, like that priest with the people behind you, and we don't believe there's a special priest in the church, but each of us becomes a priest as we lead in prayer, and we pray in behalf of God's people and together with his people, entering into the very presence of our thrice holy God. And when we think of it this way, this is no slight undertaking. Now, the man that preaches 
he has a sacred, weighty commission. And why is it the why is it such a sacred commission? Because he speaks for God to men. He's, his back, as it were, is turned toward God. God is behind him. He's told him what to say. And his face is towards the people. He's speaking to men. But it's the reverse when it comes to public prayer. The man that leads in congregational prayer, he also engages in, this, in a solemn activity. Instead of speaking for God to men, he speaks for men to God. Now, whereas the Romanists, the Catholics, they magnify the role of a particular priest, and instead of viewing us all as priests, they have a view of a certain man in a congregation that's their priest, and it's the priest that represents the people to God, and everything revolves around that. He offers a sacrifice with the, at the altar and all that, like a priest would, and he represents the people to God. That's the emphasis of, of uh, the Roman church, but Protestants have emphasized the role of the preacher in speaking in behalf of God to the people in a sermon. And that's the emphasis of our services. We believe it's a biblical emphasis. But we mustn't allow our biblical stress upon the importance of preaching in the service to eclipse the role of each man as a representative of the people as he approaches God in prayer. Now we rightly labor diligently as we prepare for a sermon. Um, we don't we believe it's right to prepare for sermons. So there are some people that think you should have no notes and you shouldn't even think in advance. It should just be something the Spirit gives you on the, on the spot. It's kind of interesting. They put all kinds of things in their margins that help them. And, uh, and, and, and that's their approach. And of course, you don't get very much food. There isn't very much careful exegesis in that kind of a setting. And uh, therefore, I think it's right to be careful when we open up the scriptures. Paul speaks about that to Timothy. We labor diligently, prepare for a sermon, but are we guilty of undervaluing public prayer? I think there's a tendency among non-liturgical churches, liturgical churches, now we have a liturgy, we have a, a, a set border that we usually go through, but uh, when we speak of liturgical churches, we have prayers that have been written out, for instance, that the preacher prays that prayer, and the congregation maybe prays a prayer out loud. And so there's much more that's written out in connection with prayer in those kind of churches. And so it's, it's a very different task to pray, not just uh, for, for uh, something that's just been written out for you in advance. You don't need to prepare about that. You just could just read it. Uh, and and, and in, in our context, the tendency is to think of the sermon as being so important that everything else is just the preliminaries or the everything else is just the introduction to the sermon. And we don't believe that it's just a, in an introduction or preliminaries. We believe that it's all a vital part of what we do as we worship together. Now, instead of reading our prayers, as we just emphasized from a prayer book that's been written by others, we pray in extempore way. We pray with words that come to us at the moment of our praying. But this doesn't mean that we don't need to think ahead about what we're going to say to God on behalf of his people. There's a place for Maybe not writing out a prayer, but to think a little bit about what we're going to say. Now, liturgical churches, they don't have to worry about the content of their prayers. They might have to worry about the spirit. You can read it in a kind of a perfunctory way, or you can read that prayer with a, with a heart. And I realize that that can be done. But they don't have to worry about getting it right in terms of the content, because it's all written out there for them. But we have to be concerned about not only the manner of our prayer, but also the matter of our prayers, what we include in our prayers. 
And all of us, therefore, that lead in prayer, we ought to do this with a sense of the greatness, therefore, of the task. And the importance of this task, it ought to be felt even more by those that are the spiritual leaders of the church. I'm thinking particularly about the elders and about the deacons of the church. And especially pastors, pastors, but also deacons, we are to be examples and models as we lead in prayer. Now the concepts that the members of the congregation have in prayer, about prayer, they are largely shaped by what they hear Sunday by Sunday as they hear their pastors pray and as they hear mature Christians pray on a Wednesday. We, uh, we learn from one another in that sense when we, when, we, when we pray because this is something that is imitated. Prayer is something of an imitated act and we learn therefore from the example of others. And yes, we give instructions as pastors about prayer, but to a large extent, prayer is an imitative activity. When the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray, he taught them what they should pray about. But that question or that request was suggested by the fact that they, they could sense that their prayers weren't nearly as good as Jesus' prayers. They wanted to be more like Jesus as they pray. And so they wanted instruction. And yet at the same time as he gave them instruction, the best part of their instruction probably is when they heard him pray time after time in their midst. And a key index, I think, of the ministry of a pastor or an eldership is the quality of the prayers of the people. So the first general perspective about the right approach to the subject is having a keen sense of the greatness of this task. But then there's a second general perspective. There is an intimate relationship between the state of our hearts and the quality of our prayers. Robert Dabney, he traces the many blemishes of our public prayers basically all the way down to two basic sources. Deficient piety, or de deficient holiness, or deficient preparation. And he goes on to say that our failures in these two areas, they give the advocates of enforced liturgy their plausible objections and the reasons why they think we should write it all out. And of these two deficiencies, deficient piety and deficient preparation, the greatest deficiency I think that most of us face is our deficient piety. Our prayers are lacking because our hearts are lacking. Our, our relationship with God is not what it ought to be. And you see, it doesn't, take, it doesn't require that you walk with God just to read a prayer. But it takes walking with God to pray a prayer that comes to your heart at that time when you're leading in prayer. And so there is this relationship between our relationship with God, our piety, and the pray, prayers that we pray. And we don't believe that enforced liturgies are scriptural, and we are forced, therefore, to come to grips with this issue. To a large extent, how well we pray in public depends on how well we pray in private. And there's no greater index to your holiness than what your prayers are when you're on your knees day by day. That, there's nothing that measures your relationship with God more than that, those prayers. And the relationship of your, and your personal prayers are reflected also in your public prayers. And so Pastor Martin puts it this way, private prayer is the drill ground for our public prayers. And then the third thing by way of general perspective, we must also be convinced of the necessity of conscious effort in cultivating our ability to lead the people of God in prayer. 
It's not something that we should just think, well, just, it'll come some, sooner or later, one way or another. It's a place for us to cultivate a better ability to pray. And there's a parallel here, I think, between praying and preaching. With reference to preaching, we're convinced of the absolute necessity of the Spirit. We can prepare all we want, but if the Spirit doesn't come down, there's not much, much that happens. It's just kind of like dead wood that doesn't have fire that comes down upon it. Um, that's, that's what the preaching is. We need the Spirit to help us when we preach. And yet if the preacher has a biblical view, he doesn't see his preparation of a sermon to be inconsistent with his utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And the preacher that thinks of it biblically, and just, I, I don't know how, I can, how often I've thought this. It, I take a sermon and I'm ready to preach it, and it just seems like it's just words. And it, it just makes you feel so helpless when you go to the pulpit, because you know that it's just going to be words. If, that's, if, if, you, if the Spirit doesn't come and help you to preach, that's all it'll be. And in the same way, we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit as we pray. We depend upon what we read in Zechariah 12 and verse 10, the Spirit of grace and supplication. And he, without that Spirit of grace, the Spirit of supplication, the Holy Spirit that helps us pray, we depend upon this to depart, impart vitality and energy to our prayers. Our prayers are so full of defects also that we constantly depend upon them not only for their manner that there would be a, 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 the grace of supplication and the earnestness and the, and the manner and the like, but we don't even know what we should pray for sometimes. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It's the Holy Spirit, therefore, that helps us, that teaches us, and that, as it were, perfects our prayers as we pray. He prays in our hearts with uh, groanings that cannot be uttered. He makes intercession according to the will of God. And we long, as Jude 20 puts it, to we long for the experience of what it is to pray in the Spirit, which indicates again our dependence upon the Holy Spirit for our prayers. But this doesn't lead us to the conclusion that conscious efforts on our part to make our prayers more edifying, that these are carnal or that are even optional. Let's remember that the Spirit's influence never supersedes our faculties. He doesn't just you know, it's just not some kind of a mystical thing that's unrelated to what we are in our hearts and what our minds are saying or what we're thinking and the like. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit's influence works with us to stimulate us and to strengthen us in our thoughts and our words and the like as we pray. And we read, for instance, that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And there's a whole other list of things that Paul gives there in Galatians chapter, chapter 5. But that issue of self-control, that indicates that self is involved in some way. There's, you, you, you don't just give in to every impulse. The Spirit restrains you to keep from doing certain things that would not be good. And he is therefore helps you in your self-control, but it doesn't mean that you're not involved in that self-control, Galatians 5.23. In an answer to the disciples' petition, teach us to pray, 
Jesus didn't say, well, prayer is something that can't be learned, really. It just comes, and you just got to wait for the Spirit. And when it happens, you'll know. That's not, that's not the answer he gave to his disciples. He gave them instructions about the content of the prayer. The, the pattern prayer is his Lord's prayer, not necessarily that has to be repeated every time, although it's helpful sometimes. But then also he gave instructions about the manner of prayer. He gave parables, like the man that, that comes for a bread in the middle of the night, and he's in, he's in, he, he, he prays with, he asks with importunity, and, and Jesus teaches us to pray with importunity like that man. He teaches us to pray with faith. And uh, he teaches, therefore, not only the content, but also the manner or the, the emphasis on the urgency and, the, and, and various graces that ought to characterize our prayers. Well, the disciples, they were expected to learn how to pray. And they were to make conscious efforts, therefore, to cultivate these gifts. He taught them how to pray, and they should put those lessons into practice. And so should we. And I want to just say by way of caution or what we call a caveat or something like a, a like a, an exception, maybe that's what that word means exactly. Um, maybe I can look it up next time and give you more of a dictionary definition. But I, I want to say just by way of caveat that to some extent that the ability to pray is something of a gift. Now, all of us have to pray, but the, there are differences in the way in which we are gifted in terms of how we pray. And I think it is helpful for us to recognize this. There are some people that are more naturally gifted as people that have more fluency when they speak. The ability to remember scripture is better with some person than another. The ability to connect thoughts one with another and have a flow of thought is better with one person than another. But this doesn't remove the necessity of cultivating the abilities we have. And some of the most edifying prayers, I think, in prayer meeting, as I've observed them over the years, not only in this congregation but elsewhere, some of the prayers that have edified me the most are prayers that come from the sincere heart of a man that struggles to pray, that doesn't have all those extra special gifts to fluently lead in prayer, but just simply he expresses his heart in a sincere way to God, and we appreciate the fact that in spite of his lesser gifts, He's willing to pray anyway and become a blessing in that way to the congregation. And so some of the edifying prayers, I think, in the church are like that. So don't say, well, I'm, I'm just not gifted at this, so I'm never going to do this. But even through a humble man's knowledge of the Bible, through his sincerity, through his earnestness, the congregation is greatly edified by their prayers. And you remember how Mary was reproved for spending precious ointment, anointing Jesus' feet. And one of the things that Jesus said about what she did is he, he says she did what she could. And God noticed that she did what she could. Now maybe she could have had some other gifts and maybe she could have been one of these women missionaries somewhere or something like that, you know, and, and done some things that everybody writes stories about. But Jesus said this simple thing that she did, it's going to be remembered forever. It's going, wherever the gospel's preached, it's going to be remembered. She did what she could. And so I would just put this in here as a word of encouragement to those of you that uh, feel like you don't have the gifts that perhaps others have as you would lead us in prayer. So these are the, the general guidelines for our whole approach to this subject. And now I want to just get started 
in the last 10 or 11 minutes here to give some general guidelines for the cultivation of our ability to lead in public prayer. And the, these guidelines are going to be of, of different sorts. And the first aspect of these guidelines, they all have to do with the fundamental direction of our public prayer. What is the direction of our prayer? Who are we, who are we praying to? And what is, what is the, the primary audience above all in our prayers? When you lead us in prayer, what are you doing? Are you giving a speech that's going to impress everybody? Is that what you're doing? You're trying to impress people with flowering words? What are you doing? You're not giving a speech. Obviously, you, you knew the answer to that when I, without me having to ask you. You're not seeking to oppress people with catchy phrases. And as they hear you pray, think, oh, man, that was kind of clever. That's not, that's not the, your purpose as you would lead us in prayer. Instead, you're the mouthpiece of the people of God as they pour their hearts out unto God in prayer. And figuratively speaking, you're not standing like the preacher with your back to God, speaking on behalf of God to men. You're speaking, as it were, with your back to the people, speaking in their behalf to God. You're the mouthpiece of God's people to speak to God. And the whole direction, therefore, of our prayers is Godward. Now, in one sense, you're to think, therefore, of nobody but God when you pray. And Jesus emphasizes this in Matthew chapter 6, and he exposes the prayers of the hypocrites, if you want to even call them prayers. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. They're not praying that God might hear them. The thing that they're thinking about is that men will see them. Oh, man, there you pray out in public here. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, in your mind, therefore, your gaze is directed towards God. Your primary focus is on the audience of one, the audience of God who hears your prayer. And as you struggle for the right words, you're not doing this because you want to impress people that are listening in the congregation. Your primary focus is, I want to bring a petition to God. I want to bring worship to God, confession to God. And as you struggle for the right words, therefore, you're seeking to bring petitions and use words that are appropriate for God's ears, not their ears, first and foremost. Uh, Spurgeon relates, and this I think was, I think I remember reading this in his autobiography years ago, how on different occasions, as he stood to lead the thousands that were gathered there to, to worship, as he would lead them in prayer, he was so caught up with his pleading that he forgot that they were even there. And when he finally said his amen, he opened his eyes, it was almost like he was surprised that there were all these people that were there as he was praying. Because his heart was wrapped up in the fact that he was speaking to God. Now, in another sense, we need to be aware of those that we represent. We're going to talk later on about the representative capacity of our prayers. We're not having personal devotions, so there is a difference. For instance, as we represent the people of God, 
we need to pray loud enough that they're here, especially if we pray in one room as we used to do, and maybe we'll get back to that sometime. But we pray. Uh, when somebody leads us in prayer on Sundays, the, the person that leads us has to be enough aware of the people that are there that he prays loud enough for them to hear. So there is that and other things that need to be kept in mind as we think about our prayers. That, and that ha does have to do with the people. But the main thing is that we represent the people before God. Our prayers are Godward. We're to seek to bring to God what all the people would be saying if they were leading themselves. The whole congregation gathers together with you and prays with you. You're leading with them. They're praying with you. You're, you're their mouthpiece. And this is why it's important for them to say the amen at the end of the prayer because it shows that they were praying with you. That's one of the things I don't like about our, our Zoom meetings is you can't hear everybody saying amen. There's a couple of people that are, have their, their mics muted and we hear that. But uh, it's an expression of this principle that it's not just the person just performing there and, and it's okay, you know, therefore, because he does a good performance, we kind of think, well, maybe I'll compliment him afterwards about, about his... No, he's not performing. He is praying to God, and we say amen. We agree. We pray with him in that sense. And the principle, therefore, is very important. This is Godward in our prayers, and there's some, some implications that come out of this, and some of them are negative implications. Some of them are positive implications. And negatively, I want to just speak, and I want to begin, I'm not going to get through these implications here, but just to get started anyway, negatively, the principle teaches us what we are to avoid. As we think of the Godward nature of the prayers, there are certain things we should need to avoid, and positively, there are some things that we are to cultivate as we think about the Godward direction of our prayers. But I want to just begin, and we'll continue with this in our next lesson. I think the next one is going to be on a Sunday afternoon uh, in the near future with some negative implications. If we understand the Godward direction of public prayer, it'll help us avoid certain faults. And the first fault that I want to mention is the fault of preaching and exhorting in our prayers. Now in preaching, the face, again, of the preacher is facing the people. And in prayer, the face of the pleader is facing God. In prayer, we're not to presume to express the Lord's mind to his people. That's not what we're doing. But rather, we're expressing the desires of the people to the Lord. Now, there are some prayers, some public prayers that would make good sermons. But as prayers, they are misrepresentation of the very nature of prayer. You remember how Jesus gave the parable of the Pharisee and of the publican, the tax collector. They both went into the temple to pray. Pharisee, remember, he parades all his wonderful things that he has done and all the things he avoids. And then he compares himself to the tax collector. He says, I'm not like that, like that guy over there. And Jesus described that pathetic excuse for prayer in these words that he prayed thus with himself. He wasn't even praying to God. It wasn't getting through to God. He was parading himself in that context. And so preaching and exhorting is in that way this is totally foreign to a biblical concept of prayer. Now, when in the middle of your prayer, you think of a fault that some individual has, or maybe several people have this fault in the congregation, when you draw attention to that particular fault and you hope that, hope that that person gets it, you know, maybe pays attention here, that maybe they need to repent of that sin, and you want to mention it so that this is, this is maybe you get through there, you don't have your chance to preach because you're not a preacher, 
And so you put this in your prayer, and you do this, you're preaching. You're not praying. Let's say, for instance, and I'm, I'm trying to think of examples that I don't know this happening right now in any context. But let's say, for instance, there are two or three people or two or three families that every Sunday they're about 15 minutes late. They wander halfway into the service, and they're way late for the service. And you've spoken to those persons again and again about this in the past. So one time in your frustration in the prayer meeting, when you're the one that's supposedly leading in prayer, you say this, Lord, we know that it disrupts the worship of God when people come in 10 or 15 minutes late. And they know that they should stop doing this, and yet they still do this, even though I've spoken to them repeatedly about this. Well, that, that's preaching. That's not praying, you see, when you, when you do something like that. Or let's say that a couple of the young ladies that were, they were, they're wearing really short, tight skirts to church, and you, you pray, Lord, you know it's a, a temptation for the men when the, the ladies wear immodest clothing. And you know that I've talked with their fathers and their daughters they are still coming to church that way. Well, that's, you see, preaching. It's not praying. And worse yet, it's really gossiping because you're drawing attention to people's faults in public. And uh, you're actually, in stirring up their passions, you're not going to lead them to repentance in that way. You're just going to make them mad. Now, if there's a genuine sin that needs to be addressed, you don't put it in some prayer, in the public prayer, but you go and address that person, you go and plead with that person, and take the uh, example of Christ and make sure that you're not picking out specks in the eyes of others while you've got logs in your own eyes. And you go and address that person privately. And of course, it's right for us to pray using the words we or our, speaking of our corporate sins. That's perfectly suitable. Daniel prayed confessing corporately uh, sin at great length in Daniel chapter 9. Our tendency to be drawn to the world. You pray asking God to forgive us for our shortcomings as parents, our coldness of heart. These kinds of things are common things that we pray for in general. And you don't say, you don't, you're not drawing attention to any persons. You're just saying we, all of us, we struggle with these things. Lord, please forgive us. These are genuine expressions of confession of sin. And then related to that is conscious teaching. And this will be the only other fault that we're going to get to this morning. Now there is a place for quoting Bible verses in our prayers as an argument for God to answer a prayer. Job says, I'll fill my mouth with arguments. But stopping to give an exposition of the verse that you're just quoting, this turns that prayer, you see, into a lecture. And there's a place, yes, for doctrinal expressions as grounds of arguments for our petitions. But some well-meaning men, they go beyond this, and sometimes going into elaborate doctrinal statements, even sometimes, I don't know if I've ever heard this, but I've, I've read about this where people will actually even quote theologians in their prayers uh, to enforce the tremendous doctrine that they want to express in their prayer. And uh, mentioning one of God's attributes as an argument for granting a petition his mercy, or his whatever it is, his particular attribute, this is a commendable thing, especially as it's an expression of adoration and, and praise. But such references, they should be presented in a devotional way. They should never wear the dress of a theological lecture. It's a painful absurdity when we undertake the role of instructing God about his character or his doctrinal truths. It's his part to inform us about these things. It's not our part to teach God in prayer and that way teach others. It's a gross misuse of prayer 
to use it as an occasion to try to persuade others of the opinion that we might have about a, about a certain matter. It only makes that person that you're trying to convince thinking you're just taking a cheap, cheap shot and why didn't he come to me? Why couldn't we have a discussion about it? You, you have to stick it there in your prayer. And it just makes them mad. It doesn't, doesn't make them feel like believing, embracing what you're saying anyway. Now, the emphasis here is upon conscious teaching. It's conscious teaching that's out of place. Inevitably, there is an imitative act, prayer is, and so unconsciously people, they learn from our prayers as we listen to each other, and we learn how to pray this way, we learn how God is to be addressed. But this is not because there's some godly saint or pastor that, uh, that set out to teach them, it's whatever instruction is gleaned you see unconsciously in the midst of a prayer. And it's conscious teaching that is out of place in public prayer. Where we're trying to get a point across, that's not something that we should do as we pray because our prayer is Godward in its direction. Well, we're going to get to uh, some of the other blemishes that characterize prayer oftentimes in our public prayers, uh, but our time has run out, so let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us the pattern above all of prayer in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you also for the prayers that are an example to us by the Apostle Paul and what, what are rich lessons of lear we, we're, we learn from them, those as well. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to pray. You would teach us to learn how we should pray in a public way, you know, avoid the things that are contrary to the spirit of prayer. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to avoid some of these faults that drag us down and, and help that hinder us as we would pray in public. And as one of us would lead and the others would follow, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us not only the content, but also even the manner of our prayers as we study this subject now and in the days to come. And we pray even as various ones would lead us in prayer today, that your spirit would come upon them and our prayers would be profitable, be a blessing to us. And we wouldn't just be coming for the sermon, but we would, all of us, enter into the prayers as they are lifted up to you. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.